Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's about nine on the night of Wednesday the 13th of April 1921, and in Gyra, in northern New South Wales, the living are trying to contact the dead. In a bedroom in a weatherboard cottage about half a mile out of town stands dark-haired, dark-staring-eyed Minnie Bowen. She's the 12-year-old girl at the centre of strange events that have mystified police, locals and the rest of Australia. Since the start of the month, Minnie's family home has, night after night, been subject to stones that slam into walls and smash windows, seemingly coming from nowhere. After sunset, there also comes banging on the walls. Banging that's forceful enough to shake the foundations and be heard a hundred yards away. Gyra's constables and an ever-growing army of concerned citizens have investigated and they've staked out the house. Despite this police presence and cordons of dozens of armed men encircling the residence, the mysterious missiles and noises have continued. Many and her extended family have been closely watched, with police satisfied they're not pulling a practical joke from inside the house. Yet, nor has any larrikin been detected causing mischief with sticks or stones from the outside. The story, first appearing in the local Gyra Argus, has since been picked up by regional and city newspapers, who've dispatched men to report on the strange happenings. Strange happenings that now include the shooting of a child, an old woman disappearing without a trace, and a self-proclaimed saviour proclaiming that all of this heralds the new revelation. With spiritualism increasingly popular in Australia, the Gyra mystery has quickly become a ghost story. Tonight, with police and locals guarding the property inside and out, the Bowens are visited by a man from nearby Urella who says he might have the answers. A tailor by trade, Ben Davey, is also a spiritualist. Hearing that the Bowens have suffered a recent tragedy, he's even more certain of who's creating these disturbances. So, with the sun now set and the farm cottage shrouded in darkness, this spiritualist tells Minnie Bowen that when the knocking begins, she has to try to communicate with the restless soul of her dead sister, May. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Gyra Ghost. Minnie's parents, Kathleen Hodder and William Bowen, married in 1908, the same year she was born, which suggests she might have been conceived out of wedlock. Kathleen was 35, a widow with two children. William was just 20. Previously in trouble with the law for stealing sheep, he'd straightened himself out as a married man and become a ganger in charge of a local roadworks crew. 
After Minnie, William and Kathleen would have four more children. This mixed family lived in a four-room weatherboard cottage half a mile outside of Gyra, with grown son Bill and his wife and small children occupying another residence on the isolated property. May, Kathleen's oldest daughter, was still living with her mother and stepfather when she gave birth to an illegitimate son in August of 1920. Less than six months later, on the 26th of January 1921, May died of heart failure in Armadale Hospital. She was only 21 years old, her baby boy now to be raised by Kathleen. But just because May was dead didn't mean she was gone. At least, that's what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was then in Australia to tell people. The creator of Sherlock Holmes hadn't come down under to deliver lectures about the deductive reasoning that had made his super sleuth famous the world over. Quite the opposite. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was now in the fifth month of a speaking tour to proselytise spiritualism. His speaking engagements had attracted thousands upon thousands of the curious and the already converted in massive venues in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. They came to hear the great man talk of seances and spectres and see his photo presentations of ectoplasm pouring from the mouths of mediums and little fairies that had recently been snapped in an English garden. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle faced much opposition, ranging from sceptics whose smirks were backed by science through to holy rollers who hated his heresy. Whether you believed him wholeheartedly or wanted to see him burned at the stake, everyone could agree that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had raised spiritualism's profile immeasurably in an Australia that was looking for answers about the afterlife, to which more than 60,000 men had been suddenly consigned during the supposedly Great War, with these diggers joined more recently by some 15,000 civilians seen off by the Spanish flu. Gyra was not on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's speaking schedule. It hardly would have been as a small village of 1,000 people in sheep and potato country between Armadale and Glen Innes in New South Wales' northern tablelands. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did pass through Gyra on the train on his way to speak in Brisbane on the 10th and 11th of January 1921. Had he known what was going to happen, the spiritualist might have extended his Australian visit. Newspaper accounts from the time record that the Gyra mystery began on the 1st of April, which, given it was April Fool's Day, was an inauspicious date. But the rules for April Fool's boil down to no pranks after 12 noon. So it had seemed merely a coincidence that on that Friday, around 4 in the afternoon, Minnie Bowen was walking about a quarter of a mile from her house when she was chased by a creepy man. The girl bolted, and he ran after Minnie, throwing stones at her. She got home and raised the alarm. Minnie's father, William, summoned a neighbour, and they searched, but didn't find anyone. The chronology of the next few days is a little confused in the available reports. Some contemporary articles say showers of stones began that night, while others indicate they began a few days later, and that was when William Bowen made his first report to the local police. But 50 years later, Roy Stennett, one of the Gyra constables involved in this case, remembered how it started differently when he spoke to the Sydney Morning Herald. Quote, Mr. Bowen arrived at the police station and told the sergeant that during the night, a railway sleeper had been placed against the bay window of his house and all the putty around one of the panes had been removed. Another constable and I were sent to investigate and we found that what Mr. Bowen had said was true. It was pretty odd because those old railway sleepers were not light and the railway tracks were almost a mile away. Constable Roy Stennett and his partner, Constable Nicholas Taylor, carried the sleeper about 50 yards to the woodpile, went back to the station and thought no more of it. That was until the next morning when William Bowen turned up again. Someone had put the sleeper back against the window and more putty had been removed from another pane of glass. Puzzled, Constables Stennett and Taylor consulted their boss, Sergeant Victor Ridge, who rounded out the three-man Gyra police force. Sergeant Ridge thought that William Bowen, though seemingly a sensible sort of fellow, was playing some sort of prank. He ordered his men to go out that night and watch the house. That night, there was no moon and a heavy mist. 
As Roy Stennett remembered, quote, A man could stand next to you and you could not see him. It wasn't what they saw that set their hearts racing, it was what they heard. Quote, we had been there for less than an hour when we heard a 22 rifle discharge and the bullets hit the house and whine off into the darkness. The cops rushed in the direction of the shot but found nothing. When they got back to the house, the Bowens were huddled in the kitchen. In Roy Stennett's recollection, a bullet had ricocheted off one of the panes in the bay window. In contemporary reports, the pane was supposedly smashed by the bullet. Available newspaper articles from the time do not include the initial sleeper and putty stories. Instead, they begin with the constables at the house responding to the Bowens complaining about stones hitting their home. This appears to have been the night of Monday the 4th of April, marked by newspapers as the first night of what would be a long vigil. Given that the creep had last Friday hurled rocks at Minnie, it was assumed that this same man was to blame for the stone throwing. Piling up sleepers, pulling off putty and hurling rocks, they could all be written off as practical jokes, but menacing a young girl and firing a gun into a window were far more serious. The next night, Tuesday the 5th, the constables were joined by their boss, Sergeant Ridge, and reinforced by four civilians. The men hid inside and out, confident there was no way anyone could get near the house without being seen. During their watch, stones hit the walls at different times, but when the cops and the citizens closed in, they found nothing. On Wednesday night, the police returned, along with more locals, several of whom were armed. At 7.30, a window was smashed almost in front of Sergeant Ridge. Less than three minutes later, another pane shattered. In a widely republished article, Sydney's The Sun tabloid was to report, quote, The watchers closed in and torches were turned on, but there was nothing to be seen to account for the bombardment. Two stones were found on a bed in the room. During the next half hour, fully 20 missiles struck the house. Among the stones found in the house was one half the size of a brick. What the police and their helpers had already noticed was that young Minnie Bowen appeared to be the target. The stones seemingly concentrated on whatever room she was taken into. Yet Minnie was also the only member of the family who didn't seem afraid. Thus Minnie was carefully watched, though police were soon satisfied she wasn't responsible for the attacks. To test the hypothesis that she was the target, on Thursday night, Minnie was taken to the house of a neighbour some distance from the large Bowen property. That night, up to 70 civilians joined the police to watch the cottage. With Minnie gone, the attack ceased. But that only seemed to deepen the mystery. The Gyra Argus was the first newspaper to get wind of these strange happenings. The Argus published on Thursdays, with its first article about the events at the Bowen Farm appearing on the 7th of April 1921. However, we only know this thanks to the report being briefly referenced in other articles published elsewhere in the coming days. That's because all copies of that issue of the Argus and the following five issues covering the entire mystery disappeared from the physical newspaper archives decades before they were digitised as part of the National Library of Australia's Trove database. The motive? Who can say? A greedy souvenir hunter seems the most likely, but it's also possible the culprit wanted the whole matter forgotten for some reason. Although the Argus isn't available to us now, then it was available to everyone in the district. Word was out, beyond word of mouth. On the morning of Friday the 8th of April, a party of motorists, including several women, drove out to see the Bowen Cottage. After they'd pulled over, a couple of the ladies were chatting when a stone flew past them and hit a tree. Seeing a constable nearby, they demanded to know if he'd done it as a joke. The constable said, no. Then, an old local eccentric appeared, saying if the stone had a cross upon it, he'd be able to tell them all about the mystery. They found the stone, and lo and behold, it was scratched with a cross. This man, named Mr. Cox, told them that he was the Bowen's landlord. 
This appeared to be true, with the old fellow having amassed some wealth despite his scraggly appearance. What was less verifiable was Mr. Cox's claim, to anyone who'd listen, that he was Christ's apostle on earth. He prophesied that Jesus was about to return, and when he did, he'd be using this very cottage as his earthly abode. There was more strangeness besides. Two days ago, on Wednesday the 6th of April, an 80-year-old local woman named Mrs. Doran had been seen wandering in a paddock with a potato in each hand. When someone asked her what she was doing, she replied she was taking the spuds back to Old Island. With that, Mrs. Doran walked over a hill and seemingly vanished from the face of the earth. Adding to the unease in the district, another local woman who'd been slightly ill suddenly became dangerously sick. Her declining condition put down to the uncanny happenings in Gyra. Locals were understandably edgy, with many ensuring that a firearm was within easy reach at night. Her husband in the hospital, a Mrs. Parker, set a revolver on a shelf when she went to bed one night that week. At dawn the next morning, her little children found the gun, her six-year-old boy shooting his five-year-old sister. Reports variously said that the bullet hit her in the cheek, passed through her neck, penetrated her head and was removed, or was lodged in her head too dangerous to remove. Happily, what the reports did agree on was that the little girl survived and was now recovering in the same hospital as her dad. Around noon on Friday the 8th of April, Minnie Bowen was brought back to the house. At 2pm, she was sitting on a bed being guarded by a constable when a stone flew through the window. This, along with the attack on the lady motorists, was a worrying escalation. Whoever, or whatever the culprit, he, she, or it, was clearly comfortable with daylight manifestations. That Friday night, 40 volunteers turned up to catch the perpetrator, whether prankster or phantom. Sergeant Ridge had got his hands on a powerful motor battery and searchlight, whose brilliant beam played across the house and surrounding landscape. Stone throwing began at 6.45, and watchers heard about 30 bangs, which sounded like missiles hitting walls or something or someone banging inside the house. They heard a lot, but they saw no one. By now, every window had been smashed. The following day, and on Sunday, the big city newspapers ran the story. The Newcastle Sun's headline read, Guying at Gyra, Mysterious Happenings, Pursuit of Phantom, Family Terrorised. The Sunday Times went with, Gyra Mystery, Young Girl Objective in Nocturnal Attacks, Solution Still Awaited. The Sydney Sun, Unsolved Puzzle, Strange Attack on Ganger, Mysterious Stone Thrower, Five Nights of Vigil. While the New South Wales papers took the most interest, the story was picked up in every state, with the headlines frequently describing the assailant as a spook or phantom and the Bowens cottage as the mystery house. Saturday night at the Bowens, though, passed without any racket. Maybe it was over, and the stone-lobbing entity, be it material or ethereal, had moved on. But the Singleton Argus was to report, quote, as if to dispel this idea, however, Sunday night proved the most exciting since the mystery began. Some 30 people turned up and they were dispelled at various strategic points. Four men were told to guard the girl in her bedroom, which is on the south side of the house, and which she and they had entered after nightfall without a light. It was not long before the customary sounds of heavy stones striking the wall began. The bombardment continued for some time, and the girl was then quietly removed to the kitchen, which is on the north side. At once, the attacks on the bedroom ceased, and the kitchen came under fire. It was late in the evening when the noises finally ceased, and a further search of the whole neighbourhood left the situation entirely unchanged. The Singleton Argus said there was a possible scientific theory for the happenings and this was that stones around the house had, in some way, become explosive, though the paper admitted it was strange that the rocks decided to explode almost exclusively at night. Another more down-to-earth explanation was that someone wanted the Bowens' cottage for themselves and was trying to drive them out and lower the value of the place. Yet, as we've heard, the eccentric prophet, Mr. Cox, owned the house. 
Was he taking a hit on property prices in order to get rid of them to make way for his new tenant, the returned Jesus Christ? Surely, a more Christian approach would have been to just issue an eviction notice. Besides, it does seem unlikely that this voluble old codger was capable of pulling off the attacks without being caught. Newspaper letter writers also had potential solutions, both spiritual and scientific. A Harold Matthews wrote to the Sydney Sun to say something very similar had happened when he was living in South Africa. There, a farmhouse had been attacked by stones for a week, centering on the family's little disabled daughter. Night after night, locals cordoned the place, but they couldn't catch whoever was responsible. One evening, a stranger appeared to say that what they should do was gather all the stones that had been thrown and toss them into a fire. The people did this, and that was the end of the paranormal activity. Mr. Matthews said that the good citizens of Gyra should do exactly the same in the hope, quote, Mr. Ghost will be cremated. A far more sceptical Mr. A.J. Barnes wrote to the Sun to say that Minnie Bowen should be subjected to a strict medical examination. This correspondent said that the harmful, destructive nonsense that was spiritualism had been born by a girl just like Minnie. Mr. Barnes wrote that in March 1848 in New York, nine-year-old girl Kate Fox had claimed she was in communion with the spirits of the dead these ghosts communicating via mysterious loud rappings that emanated around her when she sat at a table. These, Mr. Barnes explained, had been achieved by the little hoaxer via, quote, the voluntary cracking of her abnormally loose knee and toe joints. Kate Fox had actually been 11 rather than 9 at the time of the first manifestations. Older sister Leah also channeled the spirits while elder sister Margareta served as their manager as the aptly named Foxes staged the world's first paid public demonstrations of such spiritualist phenomena. Mr. Barnes was dead right about their popularity giving rise to the worldwide movement. He was also right about them being discredited as hoaxes with their ability to pop their knee, hip and feet joints loudly beneath tables unseen offered as the official explanation for rappings loud enough to be heard by audiences in public halls. The Fox sisters would eventually confess to being fakers and later would denounce spiritualism and regret their role in its rise. Nevertheless, believers kept on believing that they'd been the real deal and that included Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. For the time being at Gyra, Minnie Bowen wasn't evaluated by a doctor to see if her super-popping joints were the cause of Sunday night's riot of banging and clattering. Besides, they could hardly account for stones smashing windows. Monday night heard another cacophony in and around the cottage. Sydney's Evening News on the 14th of April reported, quote, no less than 80 persons, including a number of reputable townspeople, were on guard. Several people from Armadale visited the scene of the mystery, and they likened the bangings, which can be heard 100 yards away, to those that might be made with a padded sledgehammer, and which shake the building to its very foundations. The newspaper said that an assisting policeman, L.P. Dutton of Urundangle Station had lay beside the house with his ear pressed to a wall. This officer said the noises were most certainly coming from inside, yet those on the inside said the opposite. The Evening News said it was theorised, quote, the noises were produced by some agency between the outer and inner walls. Was it perhaps a particularly boisterous possum? This wasn't put forward as a solution, at least as far as I've read. I'm guessing that's because it was dismissed at the very outset by country people well acquainted with the doings of these critters. So, the Gyra case had to either be spookery or spoofery. The evening news continued, quote, One of the constables on watch, when interviewed, confessed that he was beginning to believe that there might be something in the spirit theory, as all sorts of precautions have been taken to prevent the stealthy approach of any material being, and the members of the Bowen family have all been so closely watched that all doubts about their connection with the mystery have been dispelled. 
it is considered by other people that while the original stone throwings and tappings were possibly the work of some practical joker, the mysterious doings are now being continued by a member of the Band of Watchers. The growing interest in the Gyra ghost story would lead to newspapers recalling two previous haunting happenings. These were only referred to in passing in 1921 reports, but they were widely reported back in their day, and I've dug into these news accounts. What they have to say is fascinating, not only because the yarns are truly bizarre, but for many parallels with the Gyra case. To paraphrase Mark Twain, it had seemed that while mystery doesn't repeat, it does rhyme. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The first case referenced in the Gyra coverage of 1921 was known in its day as the Ghostly Missiles. From around the start of February 1887, a large family, with the surname of Large, who were living anything but large, at Kuyil, on a bush property about 25 miles northwest of Mudgee, were terrified out of their wits by stones falling inside their selector's cottage. The phenomena began on a Friday evening, when they were bringing home a horse loaded with sacks of flour. The beast freaked out as it approached their house and had to be pulled to the front door so the family could unload the cargo. Then, the horse bolted. That first night, the stones appeared. Appeared as in, appeared. The ghostly missiles materialized inside the house. They were ethereal and white and floated around the room before falling to clatter on the floor as solid black stones you could pick up. This happened day after day, starting around 5 in the afternoon and ceasing at 9 or 10 at night. It didn't matter whether windows and doors were open or shut tight. This story appeared on the 15th of February 1887 in the Bathurst Free Press and Mining Journal, by which time the phenomena had been going for 10 days. As would be the case in Gyra, the phenomena seemed centred on one person, and that was Mrs. Large. Quote, Strange to say, these extraordinary occurrences are never apparent unless the man's wife is in the room. Mrs. Large, as mother of 13 children, certainly didn't need another irritating entity demanding her attention. Quote, The effect on the poor woman who feels that she is the victim of an awful vengeance is most alarming. At times, whilst the stones are falling around, deathly chills affect her whole system and almost prostrate her. One evening, fearing to remain indoors, the poor woman sought quietitude outside the house, but strange to say, several large stones dropped close to her, whilst one, although falling on some part of her body, left no mark, in fact was hardly felt. A cold deathly chill then crept over her and she had to be taken to the fire, but without restoring warmth. It is an easy matter to convince superstitious people of these facts, but when skeptics go and see and sit with a woman and her husband in the same room and have stones dropping around them, they are very glad to be rid of such unpleasant associations. The report also noted the house had no internal ceiling in which some prankster could hide, and watchers had been outside to ensure no one was on the roof dropping whatever ethereal stone matter it was on the family. The Bathurst Free Press said Mr. Large was ready to quit the property, with the writer worrying this was the perpetrator's purpose. Quote, It is to be hoped he is not the victim of some well-planned practical joke, the object of which is to worry him from his house. Similar jokes have been carried out successfully before, and it is just possible this most mysterious little affair has been concocted to get the best of the poor man. Like reports about Gyra, which mentioned this case, Newspaper reports about this case referenced earlier such happenings, with the Sydney Mail and New South Wales advertisers Mudgee Correspondent noting, quote, 
Perhaps many of your readers may remember the house in West Maitland, which many years ago was nightly assailed by showers of stones. Like Gyra, the Kuyo case baffled the police and attracted crowds, with the Sydney Mail following up a week later. Quote, One night, not long ago, about a hundred people, including several police and leading gentlemen from town, were present and departed mystified, the stones coming in as usual, although one gentleman was perched on top of a partition with a candle where he could have a good view of the roof. Of course, the same debate raged then. Supernatural being or practical joker? As they would in Gyra, writers made pilgrimage. In late February, a reporter from the Bathurst Free Press made his way to the house. Quote, we arrived at the now historic spot and were greeted by Mrs. Large, the good woman whose name has been a household word ever since the mysterious phenomena was set on the wing. She was surrounded by a pack of little Larges, the bantlings of a family of 15 to whom she has given birth. The reporter found her agreeable, communicative and sane as she described the floating and falling stones. Mrs. Large said some of the children had been struck by the ghostly missiles, with these little Larges describing the sensation as being like being hit with, quote, a small bag of feathers. The report gave many details about what Mrs. Large and her family had experienced, quote, On several occasions, stones or mud would float in the room, sometimes diagonally, other times horizontally. One evening, a most extraordinary incident occurred. A flat stone floated in at the door, struck against a kerosene lamp on the table, then knocked against half a dozen plates, causing them to roll to the floor. But, strange to say, none were broken. This stone was about three inches in diameter, nearly circular in shape, but flat. As at Gyra, there were lulls in the strange activity, and by the time the Bathurst reporter visited, the phenomenon hadn't occurred for four or five days. Yet. A few days after the reporter left, a telegram to Sydney's evening news from Mudgee said the spookiness had started all over again. In February and March of 1887, this story was news all over Australia, often under the headline, The Ghostly Missiles, though one widely reprinted story bore the headline, A Ghost or What? By May, the Bathurst Free Press reported that the Large family had in fact moved on, and the strange saga ended and was forgotten without the mystery ever being solved. Given Kuyel was remote and the Large family was largely uneducated, the story was likely written off by most city slickers as evidence of the credulity of country hicks. But seven years later, in Sydney's Inner West, a stone-throwing mystery grabbed the attention of more sophisticated society and had the chattering classes chattering all across the colonies. What came to be known as the Enmore Mystery started on the afternoon of Friday the 4th of May, when three terrace houses in Charles Street in that suburb came under sustained showers and then bombardments of stones. The missiles ranged in size from small pebbles to full house bricks. One house in the terrace row was occupied by a Mr. Herkham and his family, the middle terrace by a railway porter named Mr. McCann, and in the residence on the other side lived Senior Constable Bennett of Newtown Police Station. Some of the missiles that struck their houses weighed four pounds, and unlike the ghostly featherweight floaters out at the Large family's farm, they struck with tremendous force, smashing through the McCann's dining room window. The residents, led by Senior Constable Bennett, searched the neighbourhood but found no one. As the attacks continued, police backup was called in, and concerned citizens gathered to keep watch. How was it possible, they asked, for such heavy stones to be hurled from some presumably distant hidden point with such incredible accuracy? When the police tested their throwing arms, they found they could hurl rocks of such weight just 30 yards. As for hitting a window repeatedly at that distance, it was out of the question. Over the next five days, the attacks began each morning around seven and lasted an hour, then stopped until about five in the afternoon when they started up again. The evening news reporting on the sixth day said of the residents, quote, 
So far, the inmates are uninjured, but during one of the evening fusillades, an inmate of Mr. Herkham's household was passing along the dining room with a milk jug in her hand when a half-brick crashed through the window, shattering the jug into pieces, giving the lady, who was in a delicate state of health, a severe fright. Senior Constable Bennett's place had only copped a broken window, but the roof of his outhouse was piled with bricks and stones. Plainclothes detectives were assigned to the case and the police cordon was doubled. These men said to, quote, await anxiously the coming of dusk and the usual evening bombardment. That Wednesday night, day six, half the neighborhood was under watch, yet, quote, sometime after the usual hour, the evening's bombardment began, the ball being opened by the advent of a fairly sized spick and span brick which came whizzing over the back gate of the McCann's house and passing straight through the aperture in the already broken window smashed in twain upon the floor of the dining room. Sergeant Parkinson, who had been standing beneath the window, moved away a second or so before the missile entered. A moment later, a second but smaller portion of brick followed. This struck the window sash and was broken into pieces. The police were nonplussed by this vigorous renewal of hostilities under their very noses. The attack was all the more extraordinary and daring when it is considered that the lane in the rear whence the missiles appeared to come and the approaches thereto was zealously guarded, rendering it impossible to approach without detection. The next morning, around 7am, a lump of sandstone weighing half a pound landed in the McCann's kitchen, terrifying a little girl named Eva who was a state ward in the family's care. This 12-year-old child, who'd lived with the family for three years, ran upstairs to get Mr. McCann. He got downstairs, quote, simultaneously with the event of another missile through the broken glass of the window. Both of the McCann's kitchen windows were now completely shattered. By then, crowds were gathering daily, and supernatural explanations were gaining favour. That night, some 600 people occupied every vantage point where they might see the rear of the houses. From this point, the attacks centred on the McCann house, in which was hidden a Newtown plainclothes detective, described by Sydney's Daily Telegraph as, quote, "...universally acknowledged as one of the smartest men in the station." This sleuth was tucked away in an upstairs bedroom, whose window offered him a view directly over the dining room window below, which was the main target for the stones. The detective also had a perfect view over the surrounding yards and houses and back lane. That night, he told the Daily Telegraph, quote, There I was within a few feet of the window, straining my eyes, with not a soul in sight, not even a leaf stirring on the tree, when crash goes a brick. I never felt so humiliated in my life as to have to confess that a brick could be thrown without my catching sight of the thrower. Nevertheless, such is the case, for the first I knew of it was a swish through the bamboo just in front of the window. More missiles hit the house, which now looked like a fortress, its broken windows protected by iron sheets and bagging. But a gap of six inches remained at the top of one window, and through this hole flew a great lump of blue metal, rendered harmless when it hit the bagging inside. The McCanns were terrified and exhausted. Afraid to go out, afraid to stay in, Mr. McCann said he believed someone was trying to drive him and his family from the house. Despite his fear and weariness, Mr. McCann said he wasn't going to be forced from his home. On Friday night, the Enmore crowd numbered eight or nine hundred. While a few stones hit Mr. Herkham's house, it was the McCann residence that continued to draw fire. That weekend, people packed trams and trains to Enmore, and the crowd swelled into the thousands, creating a circus-like atmosphere. But the Saturday and Sunday spectators were disappointed because it seemed that the spook had taken the weekend off. As also would be the case in Gyra, self-styled supernatural sluice turned up to offer their assistance. One gent arrived in a horse and carriage, asked to see the house, and was given a tour. Then he asked to read Mrs. McCann's palm. Mr. McCann said that Madame would rather not, and this freelance fortune teller was politely shown the door. Next, a prominent member of the Psychic Society of New South Wales examined the house and declared the stones were, without a doubt, the work of a disembodied spirit. 
Hearing this, a sceptical bystander said if that was the case then the ghost must live in a cold climate because some of the stones had a covering of soot like they had been near or part of a fireplace. The scientifically minded fellows in the crowd were possibly even less convincing. One gentleman in a frock coat and tall hat proclaimed loudly that quote, the missiles were thrown from passing trains by a man with a newfangled machine. Another fellow said, quote, I believe it's those boys at Newington College with a big catapult. Given the physics of firing stones from some newfangled machine on a moving train, or schoolboys launching stones from half a mile away, and doing either repeatedly with accuracy and without being seen, it was clear that far-off flinger theories were utter poppycock. But the police also ruled out solutions closer to home. The Evening News reported, quote, The theory put forward that the throwing is the work of someone residing adjacent is ridiculed by the police, who assert that the inmates of a suspected house were under constant surveillance and the stones continued to arrive just the same. All that week, there were no further stone-throwing incidents. It seemed that peace had descended, but the police still wanted the culprit apprehended, and they were said to be secretly watching the houses. Then, on Friday the 18th, two weeks to the day after it began, the solution materialised, in the form of that 12-year-old state girl, Eva Greaves. Next-door neighbour Mrs Herkham told the police she'd seen, or thought she'd seen, the little girl out in the garden of the McCann house, where she picked up a stone and threw it at her own home. Tipped off, the police marked some stones and left them in the garden. Then they hid and waited. The Evening News reported, quote, After a time, and when the usual hour for stone throwing arrived, they saw Greaves come out, take up one of the marked stones, and throw it through the window. They followed Eva into her house and confronted the little girl. She denied she'd done anything. Then, on the way to Newtown Police Station, she confessed in floods of tears, saying she'd achieved her reign of terror by slipping from the house, hiding in the shadows of trees in the garden, and lobbing her missiles at close range which accounted for their accuracy and their force. But why had she done it? Eva said she'd been ordered to throw stones in a dream, and so she didn't think she was doing anything wrong in obeying that dream directive. Mr. and Mrs. McCann, who said they'd treated her well, were pained and surprised by Eva's conduct. She begged forgiveness. They declined to press charges, but said they could no longer have her in their house so Eva was sent back into state care. How was it for nearly two weeks the McCanns and the police officers inside their house had failed to notice that Eva was always absent when the showers of missiles smashed windows and slammed into walls and onto roofs? The Australian Star newspaper commented that Eva's alleged crimes were so impressive as to put the guns at Sydney Heads to shame. Quote, the weird suggestion is that this child has, right under the eyes of scores of eager watchers, been in the habit of rushing out into the yard, firing a brick through the same hole in the glass six or seven times, and then rushing back, exclaiming, Great Caesar, mother, it's commenced again, or words to that effect. I have to say, I agree with the Australian Star newspaper. The whole affair had to be hugely embarrassing for the police, with much pressure brought to bear to find a culprit. Not to say Eva didn't throw stones on that last Friday, but once caught in the act, was she leaned on to take responsibility for all of the attacks? As had been the case at Coyle, and would be the case again at Gyra, reports of the Enmore mystery referenced yet other strange stone-throwing stories that had electrified local populations and made newspaper readers scratch their heads across the country. One had been at McLean in northern New South Wales in late 1892 and early 1893. The other one started at Adamstown near Newcastle in April 1894 and was continuing even as the events of Enmore were unfolding. Both the McLean and Adamstown incidents had seemingly been resolved with arrests, only for the disturbances to start up again after the culprits had been caught. Given how recent the McLean and Adamstown cases were, either or both could have feasibly inspired Eva Greaves to become a copycat, if indeed she was solely responsible, 
or responsible at all for the Enmore mystery. In addition to the Gyra parallels, another reason I mention these precedents is to show that whenever and wherever they occurred, stone-throwing outbreaks generated much interest from the police, the press, and the public. This is something we're going to come back to in the second part of this episode. Another angle we'll examine next time is the notion that a poltergeist could have been responsible. This word wasn't used in coverage of the Kuyel and Enmore cases. Indeed, the word was next to unknown in Australia, appearing just 19 times in digitised newspapers at Trove from 1850 to 1900, and even then almost always in connection with overseas mysteries. As the Gyra case evolved, the concept of a poltergeist would become far better understood. Initial newspaper reports of happenings to Minnie Bowen and her family at the cottage took their ghostly gist from that first Gyra Argus article and were garnished with subsequent details gleaned from locals and curious visitors and updates supplied by freelance correspondents. With the spook more or less appearing on schedule each night, enterprising editors dispatched their own reporters to investigate and come back with exclusives. A man from the Glen Innes Examiner was there on Tuesday the 12th. Given that the stone throwing and banging on walls seemed to be focused on Minnie, the question had to be asked, was she the secret mastermind behind the mystery? The reporter from the Glen Innes Examiner provided a description which didn't indicate that this was the case. Quote, the girl Bowen, who seems to be the victim of the stone bombardments, is a girl of only ordinary intelligence for her age and is, if anything, inclined to be dull. This reporter joined that night's watch, which he estimated at over 100 people. It was a clear evening with a new moon, but it was also bone-chillingly cold. The bangings usually started at 7, yet that hour came and went calmly. At 8 o'clock, a local medico named Dr. Harris showed up, also intent on investigating. It's not reported if he tested Minnie for popping joints. Quote, Dr. Harris himself closely watched the girl throughout the night, and watches were posted in every room and at every window, while other sentries stood in selected positions. 9 o'clock came and went, with no disturbance. Word was passed among the watchers that Minnie had gone to bed. One of the watchers standing near the Glen Innes Examiner journalist declared confidently, we'll hear it now. They didn't. The article continued, quote, The watchers peered anxiously into the darkness awaiting flying missiles. Half past nine and the men at the peepholes complained of backache and cold feet, but the spook declined to come forth and end the vigil. 30 minutes. 1,800 seconds passed and even the more optimistic grew impatient and agreed there would be nothing doing that night. At 10.30, Dr. Harris appeared on the veranda, swinging his lantern as a sign for the watchers to come on in. Someone joked that he'd chloroformed the ghost. Dr. Harris had a chuckle at this. As he got into his car and motored off, he called out to the cold men trudging home on foot that they'd have another go the next night. In the nearby town of Urala the next day, Ben Davey, manager of tailoring business Savage & Sons and a keen student of spiritualism and theosophy, was at his job when he heard the call from Gyra. By call, I don't mean phone, I mean a spiritual or mental pull. Ben discussed this with his wife. Things seemed to happen, he'd say, that impelled him to make a dash for the next train so he could get to Gyra and put the whole affair to what he called the acid test of spiritualism. Coming to the Bowen's house, Ben saw the cordon of cops and citizens, and the home's smashed and partially boarded up windows. Inside, he met Minnie, whose eyes, he'd say, seemed to stare right through him. Talking to Minnie's mother, Ben learned of the recent death of her daughter May. The tragic sudden end to Minnie's half-sister's life, so soon before these manifestations, fit with Ben Davies' beliefs about why spirits tried to make contact. In the bedroom, Ben stood with Minnie while Mrs Bowen sat on the bed. 
Also present were their neighbour Richard Pearson, prominent Gyra citizen Alex Hay, a constable and another man. Gathered in other rooms were Minnie's father, siblings, family members and a dozen or more locals. Outside, that army of police and local people manned the walls and encircled the house. Then, at nine, they all heard it. A heavy knock on the wall opposite Minnie. Those inside the bedroom swore it came from outside. Those outside heard it as emanating from inside. The usually calm Minnie now raised her eyes and cried out, In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, what have I done to deserve this? Ben Davy took charge. He said to Minnie, If the knock comes again, ask if it's your sister May. Minnie replied, I can't speak to my sister, she's dead. Ben urged her saying, Speak dear, even if your sister can't speak, she might knock again. The words were barely out of his mouth when there was another knock. Ben would say his hair stood on end, but he kept composed enough to gently coax Minnie. Five minutes passed. Then, a third knock. Minnie crossed herself, put her hands up in supplication, and implored, If that's you, May, speak to me. No one breathed or moved. Then Minnie Bowen began to cry. Ben Davy asked, Did May speak? Minnie replied, Yes, May spoke. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Gyra Ghost. Part two will be out next Monday. To find out how you can help me to keep making Forgotten Australia and get all sorts of audio goodies as a thank you, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. A big shout out to Bianca Dufty for becoming a Patreon supporter this week. Of course, you can also show your support for Forgotten Australia by leaving a rating or review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.